Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it's our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. Hey friends, today I want to show you an encounter in the life of Christ where Jesus calls some of his first disciples or followers. But before I do that, I want to introduce you to one of my most eager followers. Like when he runs, he runs and follows me outside. He runs sideways. He's so excited and he almost bounces. Okay, hold on. I'll go get him. So this is our new pup. His name is Chief, right? Obviously, that's what we're going to name him. Um, he's a little guy right now because um, he's only been alive. Can you, can you? He's only been alive for eight weeks, but he's going to be big, like a little bigger than Amy realized. But um, I kind of love that. Um, also, to all you Buccaneers fans, uh, you're welcome because I'm not superstitious, but I'm just stitious enough to think that if we would have had Chief during the Super Bowl, it may have turned out different. Ha <laughs> Okay. He wants to go back to sleep. He said, peace out. Peace out. Go, go Chiefs. Okay. Before I show you an encounter where Jesus calls some of his first followers, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about how you feel and think even subconsciously when, when you know people are watching you. I remember thinking about this for the first time when I thought about how I acted a little different when I played basketball versus football, right? Football, you know people are watching, but the crowds are far away. But basketball, they're like right there. So especially when girls were around, I acted a little bit cooler, a little bit tougher when I played basketball. But I want you to think about how you change, how you think, how you feel when you know someone is watching you or recording you, right? How you might act or think a little different. Just keep that in your uh, proverbial back pocket for a moment. When Jesus was 30 years old, he started his public ministry by calling some people to be his disciples, right? To follow him. The word disciple literally means student or learner. And rabbis of Jesus's day, uh, they would call young men to be their disciples. Young men, because girls weren't even put in schools, back then. Now you'll see that Jesus was scandalous by what kinds of young men that he called. But later, he'll he'll be even worse because he would eventually have female disciples as well, which was just unheard of. But only the best and the brightest boys stayed in their teenage years to follow a rabbi. The others were sent back to learn the trade of their father. So the students who stayed in school would actually uh, go to a rabbi and ask to be their disciple. But Jesus did it different. He went to young men. He went to actually rejects, uh, some of them teenagers, who were now working at their father's trade. And Jesus would call them to follow him. He ultimately calls uh, 12 to be his main disciples, but I want to focus on two stories which make up five of those disciples. Luke chapter 5, verse 1, it says, One day as Jesus was standing by the Sea of Galilee, with people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. There he sat down, 
and taught the people from the boat. Now, Simon, who you know as Peter, he owned the boat. He becomes one of Jesus's main 12 disciples, and Jesus eventually gives him the nickname Peter, which literally means rock. And along with Andrew, Peter's brother, and their friends, James and John, who were brothers, these were some of the first followers of Jesus. And they were all fishermen. Now, Peter's older. He's probably in his 30s like Jesus. It seems he owns this boat, probably owns his own company. And we find out early on that, or earlier in the gospel, that Peter is also married. His brother, Andrew, he probably works for him. We find out in the other gospels that James and John, the brothers, they work with their dad, Zebedee, who also has hired help. This means that James and John were probably still teenagers. They're still learning from the trade. They're not taking over for their father yet. And fishing was a pretty good job. It wouldn't make you rich back then like a tax collector, but it helped, it allowed you to make a living and a little bit more. So Jesus is teaching the crowds. He uses Peter's boat as like a stage or a platform. He uses the water that would like uh, give a reverb to his voice like a microphone. But there's something subtle here that's, I think, important, right? If you know the story, you know that in just moments from now, Peter's life is going to change drastically. So consider this. Where is Peter right before the big life change happens? Well, one of the answers is, maybe the simplest, is that he is next to Jesus. He is near to Jesus. So in other words, I think the principle here that I'm going to pull out is, is if you will remain near to the things of God, change will be near to you. Luke chapter 5, verse 4, when Jesus had finished preaching, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let's let down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, Jesus, by trade, was a carpenter, not a fisherman. Peter was a pro. It's like his job, right? He knew that nighttime was the best time to catch fish. They'd done that, but unsuccessful, right? Now it's daytime. What you do is you clean up, you go home, you rest, you come back at night. But if you read the Gospels all as one, you realize that Peter and James and John and Andrew, they've actually been hanging around Jesus for about one year. And Peter knew enough at that point about Jesus to obey him, even though what Jesus was asking Peter to do didn't make much sense to a fisherman. But again, he knew enough about Jesus to obey him, which I think is an excellent banner for the Christian life. Because Jesus does ask us to do things in strange moments, often not giving us clear directions. But as we learn to obey him anyway, we we learn that he knew what he was talking about all along. Luke chapter 5, verse 6, when they had done so, they let out. They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. They had to signal James and John to come over. They filled up both boats so full of fish that it began to sink, and so did Peter, because it says when Simon Peter saw this, he fell, he sank to his knees, and he says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful person. Because it says, Peter and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they'd taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Peter sees Jesus, really, for the first time, that Jesus is the Messiah that John the Baptist had preached about. And he falls to his knees, he acknowledges Jesus as Lord, he acknowledges his own sinfulness. And I think this is a picture of worship, like seeing God for who he really is, and in turn, seeing yourself for who you really are in God's presence. And Peter isn't focusing on how much money he could make if he could get Jesus to be his fishing partner. 
he realizes that he's now in the presence of the one who made and controls everything. And he's in the presence of one who is watching him. You remember at the beginning, I asked you to think about how you act and feel when you know someone is watching, right? And it really kind of depends on who that person is that's watching, right? And what you hope they'll think of you if you do this or if you do that. And this is very human. It's also very difficult to just act normal or genuine. And there's a whole new level of this now with social media. We, we post, I think, with a similar experience of feeling the eyes and the views of those who will read or watch our post later. I think this is a part of what virtue signaling is, right? So much of our virtuous beliefs that we support or share or post about, they demand very little, if any, action, right? We just, we just, virtue signaling is usually just about certain groups or tribes or people or affiliations um, seeing us as on their side, the right side, however we think about how they think about us. Okay, and that's just an illustration to make my actual point, so don't get too tripped up on that. Here's the question. How do you respond? How do you feel? How do you act when you realize that Jesus is present with you and if you know Jesus' teaching, you know that he exposed the love and grace of God as our Father in heaven. Like, he's not apathetic, but he's also not atrocious. He loves us as we are. He sees us all in how we are. And like Peter, he always calls us into so much more. When Peter cried out, get away, Lord, I'm too sinful for you to have around, two things were happening. First of all, Peter didn't understand the grace of Jesus that Peter and you and me are just the kind of people Jesus wants to have around. And a second thing happening, everything fell into perspective for Peter at the greatness of Jesus. It's not virtue signaling when the person, Jesus, knows your very thoughts. It's not uh, like a spiritual ascent, right, or even commitment so that you'll find favor or go to heaven or succeed. Not when, it's, not when you realize who Jesus is. It's more of an acceptance of reality. Luke chapter 5 verse 11, it says, Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to catch people instead of fish. And this is an analogy. And like all analogies, it's not literal on every point. Jesus isn't calling Peter and the other fishermen like to capture people, make them follow Jesus. The idea is simple. The Messiah has now come. The kingdom of God is being ushered into the world. Salvation is here. Now go, invite people, gather people to get to know Jesus. Verse 11, Luke chapter 5. So they pulled their boats onto shore, they left everything, and they followed Jesus. When Peter stood there in that boat near the shores of his hometown, after getting a glimpse of who Jesus really was, he left everything. He gave up everything, but he gained everything because he had come to know the great Son of God. I think of J.J. Heller's song, Only Love Remains. She, she writes and sings, Scenes of you come rushing through. You're breaking me down. So break me into pieces that will grow in the ground. I know that I deserve to die for the murder in my heart. So be gentle with me, Jesus, as you tear me apart. Please kill the liar, kill the thief in me. You know that I am tired of their cruelty. Breathe into my spirit, breathe into my veins until only love remains. In Peter's day, 
the family trade was handed down through generations. And so in our world of individual freedom, it's hard to wrap our minds around how radical and raw this moment was where the fishermen left everything they had. These ordinary fishermen, uh, rejects of rabbinical school, they've been called by the Messiah to lead in the kingdom of God. Much was left, much was given up, abandoned, and sacrificed. But in the end, these men, among the ruins from the choice to follow Jesus, what remained was love, and that changed the world, and it still does so. After Luke chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus takes the four fishermen, he does two miracles, and then they walk by a tax collector booth run by Levi or Matthew. It says in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, sitting at his booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and other notorious sinners were eating there with them. Now, tax collectors were hated because they were Jews who worked for Rome, collecting taxes from their fellow Jews, but they collected more than they had to. And by doing so, they became rich, right? Which was kind of good for them because they already didn't have any friends other than other tax collectors and outcast sinners. But Jesus calls Levi, right? Like not only does he call ordinary sinners like Peter, he calls the worst sinners like Levi. And Levi leaves his financially secure job and he follows Jesus. Actually, the way it says it in verse 28 is, Levi got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. And Levi then throws a party uh, for Jesus and he invites his tax collector friends, right? Um, like, what was it about Jesus that possessed Levi to invite these kinds of people, right? Besides the fact that they're his only friends, but what was it about Jesus that made these non-religious, well-known sinners want to stay and enjoy Jesus's company? Now, a million things could be said here, but let me see if I can say something that might make everyone a little bit mad. Like, think about the hardcore, everything is an offense, woke left, right? But also the extreme Trumpian, all liberals are snowflake, right? Right. Both of those extremes have something central in common with religious cults and legalistic Christians. Actually, I think they have several things in common with cults and legalistic Christians. But here's one of them. They all not only think that their way is the only way, but if you disagree with them, you're, you're not just wrong, you're evil, right? And you are their enemy. Could it be that Jesus was attractive because he was very clear about truth, about right, about wrong, yet he was happy to enjoy the company of those who lived in contrast? Could it be that people today are attracted to followers of Jesus who are strong enough in character to not compromise their values, but who are happy to enjoy the company of those who diverge from the way of Jesus. Consider how attractive Christians are, who can have conversations and friendships with honor and respect and enjoyment of those people, but still live with integrity and fidelity to the values of following Jesus. During uh, Christmas break in my third year of Bible college, I played poker with some guys from the sports bar I worked at. Almost all of them, you know, sinners, uh, people who didn't follow Jesus. So th these guys would come together once, sometimes twice a week, play cards. It'd be like two to three card tables, cases of beer, smoke, foul language, uh, 1997 jokes that 
would surely be canceled today. And then there was me, uh, the third year Bible college student. And these guys were my friends. When I would arrive, the guy whose house we'd play at, uh, he'd direct everyone to the beer. And then he would yell, hey, Frizzell, there's Dr. Pepper in the fridge. Because I was their friend too. Like they teased me as their religious buddy. But like when we would talk about life or ethics, like I didn't like cower in the corner. I didn't just remain silent. I shared the truth as I believed it, but I also tried to be humble, right? I admitted that I could be wrong about some of this. You know, like them, I was just trying to figure things out as best as I could, but I I listened to what they believed. And some religious folks, friends, actually looked down on this. They said I could be polluted by the world's way, right? And there were some religious folks who went the other way. They tried to justify their own drinking and partying because, look, Dusty hangs out with so-and-so, and right? But the, here's the truth. These guys were, first of all, old enough to drink. There were no laws broken, but more importantly, this lifestyle was not a temptation for me anymore. Because like some of you, you shouldn't be anywhere near these environments, regardless of where you're, whether you're old enough or not, because you might be tempted, right? If you're still in that place where that would be a big temptation for you, right? It would be foolish for you to put yourself in those situations, even if it's to like build these friendships and, and share the love of God, right? And often those who look down on this are they're tempted by self-righteousness. You'll often find them trying to influence non-Christians with bullhorns or pickets or posts with some scriptures or a video rant, like, and wear a patriotic Jesus shirt where the flag is draped over the cross. Like, how does that even work, right? But what about an actual human friendship with mutual respect? The point is finding the balance of what Jesus taught of living in the world, but not being of it. Like believers, followers of Jesus, we don't mimic the pattern of the world based mostly on possessions of popularity, pleasure, and power. But we don't drop associations with those who diverge from the way of Jesus. We don't cancel anybody. Actually, in Christ, we can both enjoy the company of anyone and invite them respectfully to consider the person and way of Jesus. And if they decline, you, you can still be their friend. So here's what I want to do with this story of Jesus's first followers in the background. I want to close by giving you three things that you can do. First, be honest about who you are in God's presence. Like Peter, worship in humility. Now there's tension because people like extremes, right? Within like simplified tribal thinking. Often it's either you're a miserable sinner, like that's who you are, or it's something like you're a gift. You're fully good, a fully beautiful soul. But what if it's a hybrid? right? The, the very first biblically true thing about you is Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, that you were made in the image of God. But Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, everyone, all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's design. The fisherman John writes in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8, he says, if we say we don't have any sin, we're only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. And then he says, but if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all that we've done wrong. Part of worship is doing what Peter did in Luke 5, admitting who he was in the presence of Jesus. But Peter came to understand that while he, it was true that he was a sinner, it was equally true that he was God's child. His friend, John, writes later in 1 John chapter 3, Look at the great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we 
So first, be honest about who you are in God's presence. And second, invite others to join you with Jesus, like Levi, who invited his tax collector friends. So at work, at home, wherever you are, there are those suffering from loneliness, uh, emotional or physical pain. They're searching for answers. And listen, as followers of Jesus, we do not have all the answers. But at the very least, what we have, what we should have in knowing Jesus is a peace, right? That we've been called from darkness into light. And that is no small thing. Jesus was labeled the friend of sinners, right? right? Like, and, and then First John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, those who say they live in God should live as Christ lived. Be a friend of sinners. That's one of the things that means. And the majority of people who don't go to church or don't have conversations much about uh, Jesus and spiritual th things, they say they would if someone just asked them, if someone just invited them, right? So what are you waiting for? Peter left us with some wisdom on how to live in this world and earn and show respect. First Peter chapter 2, verse 15, it says, It is God's will that you live an honorable life, and this will actually silence ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. We are free, right? But then he says, Yet you are also God's servant, so don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, respect those in authority. But here's the next one from Peter. That is so good. One of my favorites. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a Christian, always be ready to explain it. But here it is. This part's key. He says, but do it in a gentle and respectful way, keeping your conscience clear. There's, there's, no, there's just no room for people who claim to follow Jesus who like fight and argue constantly about how a non-Christian is wrong and bad and and we we're over here and they're over it's just it's not biblical it's not good for your soul <laughs> it's not good for the world and Jesus is good for the world and so should his followers be so invite others to join you and the last action i want to leave you with is this get up leave everything and choose Jesus the first followers, fishermen and tax collectors, they left everything. But because it was Jesus that they followed, they gained everything. And listen to me, this is key. I'm not talking about calling, what we usually mean by that, right? Finding something you love to do and then figuring out a way to make some money out of it, make a living out of it. Now, this is a gift. It's wonderful. But I don't think the calling of following Jesus is like comparable to those kinds of following or callings where you, you know, find something you love. Those kinds of callings, in my opinion, are just a part of your character. It's a part of your choices. God cares about you. God loves you, but he wants you to choose, right? What I'm talking about is the sacrifice it takes to trust Jesus, that living his way is supreme, I'm talking about what it takes to risk everything on Jesus, that he is who he claims to be, and that his path and that his way of seeing the world is worth getting up and leaving everything, leaving things like vengeance and arrogance and materialism and virtue signaling for the praise of others or anything else. My choice to follow Jesus evolved over a year. It began on that drunken night when I was 17. I experienced evil things and I called out on Jesus. I didn't truly understand then what I was saying yes to, but nothing for me would ever be the same, right? My parents, they'd been in the next room, my sister down the hall, and they were invited too, but their journeys 
would just be different than mine. But mine wasn't radical and special because I ended up becoming a pastor. Listen, there is absolutely no hierarchy of spirituality based on your job. It's so silly. And but But even though I didn't have a Bible, when I called out on Jesus and followed him for the first time, I hadn't been to church since I was little. Over that year, I chose to leave my safety nets and follow the one who rescued me. Jesus calls all people to lay it down, to abandon all clingings to political ideology, materialism, victimhood, power as identity, and follow him. He calls pagan lost boys like me, maybe like you. He calls prodigal, prodigals and church punks like some of you. We are all called to wrap ourselves in Jesus's kingdom life. Regardless of your occupation, we belong to a kingdom realm that's hidden here and now in this one. Paul writes in Colossians chapter, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden now with Christ in God. Jesus has called every person to abandon the way of the world to follow his way. Once again, Peter says it like this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you're a, cho a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The story of Jesus' first followers, it, it shows us a map of sorts, not just a starting point, but one to which we constantly return, because our journey, our spiritual journey, is constantly evolving. The, the map shows us how to be honest about who you are in God's presence, how to invite others to join you along the way, and how to get up, leave everything, and choose Jesus. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.com.